You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Lauren Wayne is general manager and talent buyer for Crobo, the company that owns and operates the State Theater and Port City Music Hall. They are also the exclusive live concert promoters for the new outdoor music venue at Thompson's Point. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. You really are a very busy individual, and you, uh, it just continues to expand from what I can see. Uh, it has. Um, we've been pretty fortunate over the last seven years since we opened the state to um, continuously expand, so it's been pretty exciting for us. I remember the state as being somewhat of a sketchy... Um, oh, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. It was pretty sketchy. It shut down, I think, in the 90s after it was um, a porn theater. I mean, if you consider that sketchy. Some people just think that's normal. Well, <laughs> I think back in the 90s it still was a little sketchy. Yeah, no, Maybe it was... Uh, it now. was yeah, the, so it shut down. They reopened it as a nonprofit, the people who, were, um, who owned it and operated it. And so they tried to do that for a few years, and it just failed. Um, I came on board when what was then known as Don Law Company, which is now kind of morphed over the years into Live Nation as nationally known, um, were the exclusive promoters at the state. But we, when I was there, we never owned or operated. There was an owner. There was a renter. And then we rented it from the renter. So there were three people who were kind of involved in the theater who weren't really dumping any money into it. Um, so we did concerts there off and on for a few years, and then it, the city shut it down in 2006 because it was in extreme disrepair. Um, I changed jobs. Uh, yeah, I'm going off here. Sorry. You're not even asking me questions. No, <laughs> no you're still answering the same one. Okay, it's, good. It's a good answer. Um, so I changed jobs, and, and I came on with a company now uh, with whom I'm uh, – with whom? With whom? Who I'm with, whatever. I'll just leave that dangling out there. And um, they signed the lease in 2010, got me on board, and then we renovated it after the landlord actually had dumped a lot of money into it. So I think all in all it was like a $1.4 million renovation. And it's really become kind of a focal point for Congress Street. Yeah, it's going to become even more a focal point when we finally get our new marquee up. I'm sorry to Portland for the SCAF and the plywood that's been up for the last couple of weeks. Um, it, it really has. I think, you know, it was a really great time for us to come in music-wise and with the growth of the city, the way that it, it started and the way that it's continuing to do that. So it's been pretty exciting to kind of have your hand in that and watch it grow and be a part of it. And um, we do about 90 on average concerts a year there, not including what we do down the street at our club. Um, so it's, yeah. It's busy. It's a good focal point, and it's nice. And to see like the the growth and the renovation of the building and the street, you know, beyond High Street has been pretty awesome since we opened. It seems like whenever somebody starts paying attention to 
a building or a venue of some sort that other people around it, it almost gives them um, inspiration to do the same thing. It does. It really does. And so since we've been there, you know, we've had a bunch of restaurants that have opened up on that block. Um, There's been bars. There's uh, the Jewel Box. Blue's been there a while. Um, So it's been really cool because that whole block was in relatively pretty bad disrepair. And now it's like, you know, one of my favorite places to be. How did you come to be doing the work that you do? That's a good question. I um, I'm, I did not go to school for it. I had no experience. I just really love music. Um, I went to school for history and journalism, and I don't use any of it. Just kidding. Uh, I use journalism a little bit. And I just kind of met somebody when I was hanging out at the Skinny back in the day, and he knew a guy, and he introduced me, and this person happened to be Jim Ahern who was then with the Don Law Company, and he was looking for a marketing coordinator, and he hired me, and that's how I got into it. So it's really all who you know. Well, you know, I I do think that's an important point, especially given what you are currently doing. Yeah, which was working at AAA and FedEx. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, that's very interesting that you would would kind of start off in a fairly mainstream corporate structure. And then by some, I guess, luck of association, you found your way into something that really fit you very well. Yeah, and and it wasn't, what I was doing with FedEx and AAA was not, I was working obviously for huge corporations, but I was packing planes and, you know, being a dispatcher. When we, my friends and I moved to Portland, it was on a whim. We were from Sedona, Arizona. We came out, we visited, we fell in love, we signed a lease a week later. Um, And I knew, I didn't, I went to a relatively conservative, yet you know, I guess, whatever, I'm not going to say the name. I went to a relatively conservative college, and so most of my friends out of college went right for it, and they got the financial analyst jobs, and they became lawyers, and they went to work for big corporations and started head of families, and I knew that just wasn't what I wanted right away, and I knew I wanted to wait for something that really felt right, and I'm really glad I did because it really paid off. How did you end up at a conservative college in the first place? It was... It it was... it was l- l- kind of liberal, but not really. It was a, uh, It's in the South, in Virginia. Um, and I knew that I wanted to go back to Virginia. I was born there, and a lot of my mom's family's there for um, history. I'm a big Civil War buff, and I w- thought I was going to go either be a historian or a um, television broadcast journalist. But while I was in school, I realized when you're a broadcast journalist, you cannot have opinions on the air. And you need to be <laughs> relatively neutral. And that was very, very hard for me. So I had gone down the road long enough where I finished the degree. Um, and then I was concentrating now more on the history. And then when I got out of college, I was like, what the? I don't know. And so I just moved out west and just kind of figured out some stuff, had fun, did a lot of hiking. Sedona's actually a pretty magical place. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't hit there first. I landed in Albuquerque. Um, so I lived there for two and a half years, and I was a recycling coordinator. So I would go buy big, big box stores cardboard bales, and I would negotiate the price <laughs> for cardboard bales um, at places like Target and Walmart and, and the big box stores. And then my brother at the time lived in Santa Fe. He moved to Sedona. He has ties in Flagstaff, Arizona for college to start a garbage and recycling company. And I moved there in 1998, I think, or 99. And I was his recycling driver. So I would drive a big truck and sort recycling. 
and run into big gates when it was icy and take down some trees with the big box trailer. So it's not the magic of Sedona that caused you to <laughs> reinvent yeah, yourself. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. Somehow. Yeah, it wasn't the magic wasn't helping that truck. Um, no, but it's it, it's definitely a magical place, and I try to get back there every year. He and his wife still live there, so we go back for about two weeks every year. If we can. What was music for you when you were younger? What did you sing? Did you play instruments? No, or? I did. I played the piano. I started late. My parents never pressured me into um, an instrument. And then when I was 13, I just decided that I wanted to play the piano. And I'm really glad I did. I, I um, practiced for three years. And I think started at a time where I was interested and stayed with it and was pretty okay at it. Um, and then that kind of just tailored or tickered off. My my mom's family is a huge music family, so we would go to like a beach vacation every other year, starting when I was maybe eight or nine. And my uncles, my parents, my parents, my mom has four brothers and a sister, and all the uncles are musically inclined. So they brought out the guitars, and we'd sing Crosby, Stills and Nash, and it, that's really what got me started. Um, and then I've just really always. This sounds so cliche, but for me, it's like been a huge part of my life. I mean, it can set your emotions. It can change your mood. You know, my one of my favorite things to pick me up if I'm feeling down is just to like get in the car and drive with the windows down and like your favorite songs. It's just, it's magical, really. And I knew I wanted to do something with it. I just didn't know what it was. But it was not going to be on stage. I'll, I'll tell you that. This is already hard enough. So wh why not on stage? I don't, it's just not... I'm not really into that. I, it's not for me. Like, I don't really getting getting up in front of people. And So how would you have been a broadcast journalist? Well, I, that on TV, it's a different thing. Like, if you don't see them, <laughs> they don't exist. Um, but on stage is a totally different thing. And it's a hard, hard life. It's a really hard life. And it's, yeah, just, I always knew that was not for me. But I never actually knew that there was a whole other side of it. Like a lot of people who I work with now and um, who are with the company or with my parent companies, you know, they grew up in that and they knew right out of college that they were doing this in college. They were doing, you know, they were hanging up posters for shows and they were promoters. And I just, I never knew that there was that side of the business. I just never thought about it. Um, and then when I found out that there's this whole other side of the music industry, I knew that was for me. What is it about that side of the music industry that you find so appealing? I think for me it was figuring out that you could have a part of um, putting on a show because I always loved, loved going to concerts and I still do. Um, it's harder to get to ones that we're not doing right now but that when you're at a show how much you know you change as a either like if you're there working or you're there enjoying the show or you're on stage or you're guitar tech or you're a promoter, it's just this feeling of a like connection and being part of a tiny community within a community. And I was like, I really kind of, that's cool to be a part of that. It's cool to help put it on. And then it's like really cool when you're there and kind of looking around being like, oh my God, I had a totally a big part of making this happen for everybody. And that's really cool. It's a ni nice feeling. What are some of um, the differences that you've found between putting together a show lineup for the state, for example, and Thompson's Point? Um, it's, there's so many different things about it. Um, the one thing that I feel really grateful for is that I've been on the ground floor of all three venues that we um, own and operate. Um, and so you have, you're pretty much directing what happens, and that's a big thing for me. Um, the state is totally different. It's, you know, we 
it's four walls. The infrastructure's there. It's a building. You're not bringing in sound and lights every every show. Um, in terms of the the booking, it's not too too much different. Um, it's really kind of what we do. We have certain genres that we are more comfortable. We call it talent buying um, for and. Yeah, it's not. It's just the money is much larger at Thompson's Point because the infrastructure is not there. You're you're you know building and breaking down, and so it's a lot more financially risky. But in terms of like the lineup, it's not. It's uh, I'm I. You have to have a high risk tolerance for this job. You have to have a really high risk tolerance for Thompson's Point. So there are stuff you know that I'm not going to be taking a risk on there. But fortunately, that's stuff we can always bring to the theater. And I think most agents and musicians understand that. They don't want to be put in a situation where they're uncomfortable, where it undersells and there's only 1,000 people at a 5,000 capacity venue. That's not going to make them feel good, and I don't want to put them in that position. Um, so that's another part of the job, too. It's a lot of loyalty and trust. You know, the trust that the agent the musician has in us as promoters to make them feel good and put on a great show, and the trust in um, that we have in them, that they're going to come, they're going to show up on time, and they're going to, like, nail it for everybody. Because it's a huge responsibility when you sell either 800 tickets or 1,800 tickets at the state or 5,000 to 7,000 at Thompson's Point. Like, you, you've done everything you can to the best of your ability and the best way that you can up until the show day. And then when the musicians get on stage, you're kind of like, okay, please, please, don't walk off stage after three songs. What about people like, um, like our producer Spencer Alby, who does Beatles Night Hi. every year? What? What? Don't check it out, Lauren. I I've, I've heard all about it. Tell me about that relationship, that ongoing year-after-year relationship with a local musician and his group that have also been really all over the United States and maybe all over the world. We'll we'll say the United States. (laughs) No, it's, um, I mean, the the relationship I have with Spencer is definitely special, um, but it's something that we, you know, for lack of a better word, cherish. The, the, the relationship with us and local musicians, it's not something we get to do a lot at, at a venue as large as the state, and especially at Thompson's Point, but when we can, we love to do it. Um, it's been amazing, both personally and professionally, to watch Spencer do what he's done with both his own music and with the music of the Beatles, and to be a part of this growth and all the nights is amazing. It's one of my favorite nights of the year. If I ever leave for Thanksgiving, I make sure that I fly home in time for Beatles night. It's that awesome. And just that feeling when you're in the audience, it's like the best night of the year for your local musicians, either on stage or like all around you. It's an amazing sense of community. Everybody's there. You're either seeing like your best friends on stage play music or you're surrounded by your best friends enjoying the music. It's like, it's something that cannot be repeated. It's awesome. Thank you. This summer, Spencer um, also took part in uh, a larger performance with Guster and yeah. with Ghost of Paul Revere. And so that's another interesting example of um, a local and national, international um, talent. Yeah. Yeah. So there, are, there will be occasions when a national artist um, doesn't, we call it tour with a package. So when they're touring with a package, they usually um, create their own experience on stage, which also means bringing their own support and opening bands. 
Um, there are times when national artists ask us to put on local or regional acts, which is we love when we get those emails and calls. Um, and Guster, you know, because they have local ties to the community with Adam and Lauren, um, and being half of them are for, from Vermont, they really get it and what like Portland is all about. And they were very, very interested and wanted to create a music festival weekend, mini festival, that really incorporated not only you know local businesses and retail, but local musicians. And that was um, a really, I don't know if you guys went to the other things going on around town, but those guys were tired after that weekend. They did a lot. But that day um, was Spencer on stage and one of his bandmates is actually one of my coworkers, uh, McCray Hathaway. So that was really cool for us to see him up there. It was also a fun crowd. We were there with our kids, yep. and um, our kids are all older in their 20s. The youngest is 16. I don't think she was there that night, but I mean, it was nice to be able to see other people in the community who were there for different reasons. You know, yep. there were some people who were there because they remembered when Guster um, started out at Tufts. You know, so 20 years ago or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, 25. 25 years ago. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then there were other people who were friends of Spencer, other people who were friends of Paul Revere, I yep. mean, and other people, you know, so everybody had kind of a different reason for being there, Yeah. but it felt very homey. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, with the artists and with all the people involved, something that, like, we pride ourselves on at any of our venues, um, just creating, a, one, a safe space, but a space where you feel connected and that you belong, which is something that's really important to me and my staff. Um, as soon as you even just buy the ticket, your experience throughout the whole process, if you have questions, if you go online, if you call us on the phone, and then when you give the, you know, the ticket to the ticket scanner, when you walk into that venue, we want you to feel happy. We want you to feel connected. We want you to feel, I know this is cheesy, but this is what we want. We want you to like hug your neighbor if you want to, or like do a dance. Like it's very, very important to us that you have that good of a time at any of our venues. And that's really what music is all about. Um, it brings people together. And when you're there for those three hours, you should have like the best time of your life. And we want to help you have that experience. It's, a, it's an interesting thing for me now as a parent of 20-something-year-olds that to experience that they have the same musical taste and sometimes that I do. Because it used to be my parents listened to something when they listened to their albums on vinyl. Yep. And then I listened to my cassettes, I guess, because I was a little bit too young for eight tracks. Yep. But now with iTunes, there's so much crossover that it's funny to know that other people, like your children, can like the same things you do. Yeah. My, I mean, I love Ninjago music because my five-year-old loves it. Just kidding. I don't really like it, but that's what he's listening to. Yeah, it's cool. I um. Uh, well, obviously, streaming has just changed the way people are getting their music out and the music business and labels and all of that. Um, I think it's amazing and some one of the best things. I'm not a musician, though, so I don't have to deal with licensing fees other than paying what we you know do at the venue. But it's it's just bringing it to more people faster. It's also, you know, can be a con if you're trying to, like, keep up with the latest and greatest. But I don't think most people are trying to do that anymore. They just want to discover something new and what they like. Um, but I remember in terms of, you know, bringing the generations together, my parents used to have a beach party every year when we lived in Georgia. And it was um, 
they used to ship in sand, so all the whole driveway was filled with sand. It was like a neighborhood beach party, and they played 60 shag music in Motown. And I love now 60 shag music in Motown. I never listened to it as a kid because I'm like, gross, they're dancing. But now it's like, you know, Motown music is where it's at. Well, is there also something about the emotions associated with the group that you're with at the time? I mean, Mm -hmm. you talk about these events with your family, with your parents, and how that has created this emotional tie to that music. Is this something that you are trying to capitalize on somewhat in these venues? Um, Yeah, I mean, obviously we're, you know, we're a for-profit business and we're not interested in losing money. Um, So, yeah, there's something to be said. We, We... you know, I, it's not all fun and games and music, and it's, I have to do P&Ls and flash reports and a lot of Excel spreadsheets, and that is the downside of it. But the upside is, you know, not seeing any red on the Excel <laughs> sheets. Um, so sure, I mean, you know, in full disclosure, no, we do not want to lose money. Um, but we're very good at what we do, um, and what we do <laughs> is good times, <laughs> and it's all working out. We talked to Bill Ryan, um, the owner of the Red Claws, about his time at Oxford Plains Speedway. And one of the things he talked about was weather yeah. and how that was just such a big part of every conversation because, of course, their events yep. are all, all outside. Outdoors, yeah. So this must be some, at least some part of the conversation when it comes to Thompson's Point. Yeah, of course. Um, it's a huge stress, but you just have to kind of let it go because what are you going to do? I mean, we're, we're promoters and we've decided to do an outdoor amphitheater. And that's all you can do. You just hope that the weather's going to be good. And there are things in, you know, in place that will help us if we get rained out. We have weather insurance. We subscribe to a, a weather forecasting service that's tailored to wherever you are with lightning strikes and radiuses and all that. So, I mean, you know, to, an example is the Alabama Shakes this year. We had a sold-out show. It sold out in a day with 7,500 people coming, and it was forecasted for storms. I literally like was looking at a computer screen the entire like 48 hours leading up to the show and on the show and my eyes the next day were like bleeding. Um, it ended up working out great. We started the show a bit early with the support and the Alabama Shakes ended up doing an encore and finishing the set just when lightning struck. So then we had to evacuate the, the um, venue. So yeah, it's weather plays a big part of it, but you can't control the weather. So you just kind of got to smile and hope that the Alabama Shakes get an encore in. (laughs) It seems like Portland has been able to attract some pretty um, impressive names, Mm -hmm. maybe in the last 10 years, probably before that. But it seemed like there was a little bit of a downturn when I talked to Carol Noonan from um, Stone Mountain. Stone Mountain, yep. She was saying that, you know, there was a little bit of a lull where there wasn't a lot of live music, but um, now even out in Western Maine, she's able to Mm -hmm. um, capitalize on the fact that people really are enjoying live music again. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to that. There's a lot of different parts. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the more active live music is in a city or a market, the more stuff you're going (coughs) to, sorry, going to be getting. Um, We have a I think we've played a big part in that just with the state theater being open. You know, no band wants, any developing band, wants to come and play a small venue like Port City, but then have nowhere else to play the bigger that they get. So with, you know, places like Portland House of Music and Blue and One Longfellow, you have the ability to get these developing bands in there, eventually get to Port City, you know, and their goal one day is to play the state theater at 2000 cap. It's a, it's like the sweet spot 
in venues. Um, and But then the more activity you're getting through Portland, you know, agents and other musicians are taking notice. So they're like, wait, that band played there? I want my band to play there. And Carol Noonan is doing awesome things out west, and there's some wineries now up north, and it's great. Cellar Door brings in <laughs> these, like, amazing acts. Um, it's cool, and it's really great to, you know, we're not, it's not a competition. We know that, I, I mean, I know that I can't be doing this without the smaller rooms in town. I just can't. And, and t- for me, you know, I owe them when somebody comes to me and it doesn't necessarily fit in any of our fabric in our venues, you know, to say, hey, there's this awesome room down the street. You want to check it out. Um, but, yeah, the more activity I think a city a city gets or a market, it's just going to get better and better and better. So there was that dry spell when the state closed, and it was awful. And then when we opened, even that fall in 2010, it was real hard to, like, remind agents and musicians that, okay, Portland was a viable market. It's not been for four years. It's been pretty dark. Give us a chance again. And then, you know, that was seven years ago. And now, you know, it's a lot. It's not a lot of reaching out anymore. It's a lot of taking calls and emails and about agents being proactive and getting their bands through Maine, not just Portland. What would you say your biggest challenges in this industry? Um, one of the biggest challenges that I think we've done pretty well with is, um, you know, we're, it, we're what we consider a tertiary market. So it's a small market. I mean, when you think that Portland's only, what's about 65,000 people, but the surrounding suburbs are 300,000, that's small when we're doing 250 shows a year. And that's just our venues. And then you have all the other venues. Um, so one thing that we've really tried to do is, you know, these bands are making so much more money in primary and secondary markets that their ticket prices are a lot higher. So they've, it's really been training like the bands and the agents. Like when you're coming to Portland, I can't have a $100 ticket. I can't even have a $75 ticket. You know, it's gotta be an Elvis Costello for that, for that high of a ticket price. So we've kind of inched, you know, we started out relatively inexpensive and then you, you know, you inch your way up until people are, are used to it. Plus, you know, people are doing better than 10 years ago. Um, and this, the growth that the city has seen is definitely helping that. So our average ticket price now at the state is like $35 when it used to be 25 And that's a big challenge that we had, but it's working out. Um, another challenge is just, I am so grateful for my staff. Just putting on a show is really difficult. Um, and I, you know, do the buying and the marketing and then basically, you know, have a lot of trust and loyalty in my staff to put the show on. Um, and they go through some really challenging times and aspects with doing a show and they don't get a lot of the credit. Um, and they're amazing. So, you know, that's, it's 250 shows a year. That's a lot of shows. And we're a small crew. And the, the women and men who work for us in production and the bar and just general staff it's just it's amazing so thank you guys um you know you always say you can't do it without each other but you i literally can't like if i just booked and marketed a show and sold the tickets and then walked away there wouldn't be a show um yeah there's all kinds of challenges but whatever we're we're, we take them one day at a time really and then your show is ending and then you're on to the next show well, this has really been a pleasure. Oh, um, thanks for having me. This conversation. I've been speaking with Lauren Wayne, who is general manager and talent buyer for Crowboat, the company that owns and operates the State Theater and Port City Music Hall. 
And oh, thank you by the way for bringing Delta Ray in. Oh, we love well, Delta Ray. You're Went there with and my daughter. Thanks to Delta Ray. Yeah, great group. <laughs> they are the exclusive live concert promoters for the new outdoor music venue at Thompson's Point. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.